0: Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin, the Medical Officer of Health in Haldeman, Norfolk, says the region has entered the fifth wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. How do we make electric vehicles more affordable in Ontario? Conservative leader Erin O'Toole remains under the microscope. Tips on how to beat and avoid holiday debt. Will COVID-19 booster shots be a part of your workplace vaccine mandate? The University of Guelph has a new Black Canadian Studies program, and we talk about Beamer Balls a.k.a. Tim Beebs. The GMH podcast starts now.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Interesting story out of Haldeman, Norfolk. The medical officer of health in that region is suggesting the region has entered the fifth wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. His name is Dr. Matt Strauss, and he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Strauss, good morning.
2: Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me.
0: What indicators have emerged that are suggesting that the fifth wave is now in effect in Haldeman, Norfolk?
2: Well, I, you know, I, I might regret that terminology, <laughs> but um, it, was, it was sensational um, at the time. And, and frankly, the intention was to be a bit sensational. Um, I, I think, you know, some folks are saying we're in the second part of the fourth wave, and, and I, I guess I don't so much care about the nomenclature. But if you look at the graph of cases uh, throughout Ontario... They peaked up in september they came down in october and they're going back up now so there's definitely two bumps on the graph you can say provincially that um this is a fifth wave if you look at the local data in and norfolk we sort of didn't have a fourth wave um so when cases were peaking in hamilton a couple months ago our cases remained quite low um and that's sort of what we're seeing across the province in in the places that are currently peaking are the places that gave the fourth wave a bit of a miss so um, I hate to say out of the way, or you might say geographically, socially distanced, uh, places like Tilsonburg, Woodstock, Barrie, Kingston, Sudbury, uh, the Sioux, are all seeing a peak in cases right now where they didn't when, when Hamilton and Toronto did a couple months ago.
0: So whether it's, uh, you know, fourth wave 2.0 or the fifth wave, no no matter what the number is, um, is the latest bump concerning in Haldeman Norfolk?
2: Absolutely. That's why I chose the terminology. I think that... Um, you know, there was a lot of uh, uh, you know mainstream press from larger centers. I mean, it just is is the case that that most of the media is in Ottawa, Toronto, and Hamilton. And so, um, as folks were saying, the fourth wave is concluding, and and I was not going, uh-oh, uh oh, cases are jumping up uh, in in. And so I think it was really important for our community members to be aware of that. And um, that's why I chose to speak that way.
0: Dr. Matt Strauss is the Chief Medical Officer of Health in Haldeman, Norfolk. We're chatting about a a, a rise in cases there and in other parts of the province. In Haldeman, Norfolk, from what I understand, the the vaccination rate, the fully uh, vax rate, is at about 85 percent. Yet cases and deaths are seeing a bit of a bump. So what's going on?
2: Okay. The first thing I should say is thank you for the promotion. I'm not. I'm not the chief medical officer of health. That's that's Kieran Moore. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, the, I'm the local medical officer of health. Yes. Um, uh, and uh, your question about uh, deaths and hospitalizations going up in uh, in a setting where we have really uh, good vaccination rates. We were lagging a bit compared to the provincial average two months ago. We've now caught up. We're, we're bang on the provincial average. I. I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of my team for that. That was my major objective when I when I took the role. Um, what I can tell you, and you know, I have to be careful to protect the confidentiality of um, those who have passed away and, and um, uh, not uh, not worsen their family's grief. But I, I think it's important for the community to know that we've had five deaths in about the last six weeks, um, and four of those five were in unvaccinated individuals. Um, the the fifth death in a vaccinated person wasn't somebody who was terminally ill from um, another condition. So my my overall message is the vaccines work. They're amazing. I think that last winter we didn't have vaccines. Um, when the pandemic started, we thought it would be a year and a half minimum before we would have these vaccines. We got vaccines uh, in less than a year they're extraordinarily effective. They cut the risk of death or hospitalization down by 95%. We at the public health unit and in the province and nationally, we've done backbreaking work to make sure everyone has the education they would need to make a decision about getting vaccinated, the access to the vaccines. Um, And at this point, not being vaccinated while cases are going up in our community is like uh, riding a motorcycle without a helmet or, or going skydiving. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend either activity and they're both risky and um i but i can't I can't stop you and I can't protect you from what might happen if you if you make that choice.
0: As you mentioned, Dr. Strauss, there was really a Herculean efforts to develop the vaccine, roll it out, really a rush to, you know, get uh, this vaccine into our arms over the last number of months. Uh, It has stalled quite a bit. What efforts is the region taking to getting to those who are unvaccinated and convincing them that this is the best option for them?
2: Right. So since I've uh, taken my post, which I did uh, just a little over two months ago, I've had a call my office. I I am used, for 10 years I was a hospital doctor, and I I was used to me giving a recommendation and someone having further questions or thinking that my recommendation might not apply to them or that I might not understand their situation. Um, And so my observation has been among the stragglers, they've had their reasons for not um, feeling that they should get it. And it's my, I I have all the time in the world, um, frankly, to to talk with those folks and um, discuss their particular concerns and help them to make the right decision. So I've, uh, my office has got lots of calls based on that offer. And I've I think I've uh, managed to get a few more sh- shots in arms uh, that way. I mean, that's not to take away from all the other things the health unit is doing. We're having pop-up clinics at fire halls in rural communities. We had the GOVAX bus driving around at the county fair, um, school clinics, like you name it, uh, pa- sending out pamphlets and, uh, and, and media spots like this one.
0: Dr. Strauss, really appreciate the time. Uh, thanks for your efforts in getting uh, more jabs in arms, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road.
2: But thanks for having me. That is,
0: that is Dr. Matt Strauss, Medical Officer of Health with Haldeman Norfolk, joining us here about uh, some of the efforts that are being undertaken in Haldeman Norfolk, which is now, according to him, in the fifth wave. And that might be, you know, highlighting or over sensationalizing where they are in terms of, uh, you know, the timeline on the pandemic. We know that, I guess, technically here in Ontario, we're still in wave number four, whether it's four 2.0 or wave number five, uh, the cases that's, you know, some cases, some hospitalizations in different areas of the province are seeing a bit of a spike. And we've got to get more people as we enter indoors more often and for longer periods of time this winter, more people with shots in their arms.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Right now, the auto
3: industry is changing as consumers demand a different kind of vehicle technology. And the industry is shifting rapidly and preparing to build the cars of the future. As a government, we must ensure our manufacturing sector keeps pace.
0: That is the voice of Ontario Premier Doug Ford, who says the province wants to produce 400,000 electric and hybrid vehicles by 2030. Says the province intends to partner with the auto sector on new automaker mandates for hybrid and battery electric vehicles establish a battery assembly plant, and increase Ontario-made auto part exports. And the plan also involves a long-standing government goal to mine in northern Ontario for minerals used in batteries and more training for auto workers, which is not a bad thing either. Uh, Our guest to talk about this is uh, Mike Schreiner. He's the leader of the Ontario Green Party, and he joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Mr. Schreiner. How are you?
4: Hey, good morning, Rick. I'm good. How about yourself?
0: I'm okay. Your thoughts on uh, what Mr. Ford had to say about uh, producing more electric and hybrid vehicles?
4: Yeah, I wish the Premier had given that speech four years ago, because Ontario is losing out in a lot of auto sector investment. I mean, my gosh, in the U.S., in the southern states alone, $24 billion has been invested in new electric vehicle manufacturing plants. That's exactly why the Ontario Greens for years now have been calling for an EV auto strategy for the province, in order to maintain good automotive parts and manufacturing assembly jobs here in the province. And the fact that the premier is delayed so long has really hurt our economy. The other thing the premier has to realize is that in addition to creating the conditions for us to take advantage of manufacturing opportunities, we also have to make electric vehicles affordable for average Ontarians. I mean, in particular, it's the best way we can save people money at the pumps. is just to get big oil out of our lives. And the fact that the premier doesn't understand that things like fee programs to help make electric vehicles affordable for people, things like charging infrastructure, I mean, the premier's been ripping charging stations out of uh, parking lots and taking them out of the building code, Things like that make a difference in making life more affordable for people and also creating the demand for the manufacturing jobs that we want to have here in
2: Ontario.
0: I think the, uh, to be honest, I think the affordability issue is the biggest hurdle, especially, you know, if you had to replace a battery or get one fixed, I mean, it costs a lot of money and it costs a lot of money to buy or even lease one of these electric vehicles. How do we bring that cost down? Is it, is it just rebates or can we do more?
4: Well, I mean, we, we need things like feebates to, to make them more affordable, because as auto manufacturers scale up, the cost is going to come down, and the cost of operating an electric vehicle is far less expensive than a gas-powered car. I mean, most tests uh, are that it costs one-tenth, uh, primarily because, you you know, it costs about 60 to 70% less to fill it up with electricity versus gas. And then your maintenance cost is one half or less. You don't have to go in for regular maintenance like oil changes and things like that. So the cost of operating an electric vehicle is far less expensive than a gas-powered vehicle.
0: You mentioned that this plan should have been interest, uh, introduced years ago. Have we missed the boat? Have we are, are we behind the eight ball in terms of building these plants, making these vehicles?
4: Well, I'd say we, we uh, still have opportunities. There's no doubt about that. So uh, you know, it's never too late to get in on the game, but the reality is, is you know, in, let's say, in two states in the U.S., Tennessee and Kentucky, the Ford Motor Company alone has invested $11.4 billion in new plants, $24 billion across the region. We want to be attracting that investment in Ontario, and a lot of those investment dollars were decisions that were made a number of years ago, many of them actually based on Obama-era policies towards the end of the Obama administration and so yeah it's never too late to get in on the game but the fact that the premier has been so hostile to electric vehicles really since the day he was elected um has really put ontario behind the eight ball we have a lot of catching up to do the good news is is we have a trained workforce we have the manufacturing material facilities we have um the the minerals if we if we mine them sustainably appropriately and in partnership with indigenous nations uh, to really create, especially when it comes to battery production, and not only for electric vehicles, but also for uh, storage for uh, efficient, low-cost, renewable energy uh, grid systems. And also we have to m- make sure we also recognize the importance of electrifying public transit, so buses in particular, trains, and things like e-bikes as well.
0: We're chatting about electric vehicles and the plan to produce 400,000 of them, along with hybrid cars, by 2030. That's the promise yesterday from Premier Doug Ford. Our guest is Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We have some automakers in this province who are making that transition to electric. How do we convince others to build plants here, whether it's Tesla or Volkswagen or or you know other automakers who no, are not currently building cars here?
4: Yeah, I mean, part of it is, is to, uh, that we have a government that's going to say, hey, we're going to champion electric vehicles. We're going to make electric vehicles affordable for our residents. We're going to make sure we have a charging infrastructure, uh, system in place to make it easy and, you know, safe and reliable for people to drive electric vehicles. And that's exactly what the Ontario Greens, uh, climate action plan is all about. We have a $5 billion EV mobility fund. Uh, to help create the incentives for manufacturing and rolling out uh, electric vehicles. we also put in place a $4 billion uh, climate bank to create the seed capital for entrepreneurs to scale and commercialize new technologies, particularly when it comes to opportunities we have in the green economy. And so I think it's going to take a partnership between government and business to really make this happen, and that's exactly what, what, you know, we as the Ontario Greens have been advocating for for a number of years and will be aggressively pushing forward uh, as we go into the next election.
0: Um, I, like uh, probably a lot of other Ontarians, are contemplating whether or, or when, really, to, to jump into an electric vehicle. Do you get the sense, you know, you, you've toured this province, you've been, uh, you know, with constituents, do you get the sense that a lot of people are in that same boat, they want to make that switch, they're just really hesitant to do so?
4: Oh, absolutely, Rick. I can tell you as somebody who drives an electric vehicle and has literally been touring across the province in my electric vehicle, and and I I tell people I, I did a summer canoe trip every summer. I do a canoe trip with my daughter, and we went from Guelph all the way to North Tamagami with a canoe on the roof of my electric vehicle, uh, traveled the whole way, and so I can tell you it's certainly possible. It's certainly doable. It's far less expensive than than a gas-powered car. But I can also tell you we do need better charging infrastructure in the province to make it um, just easier for people. It needs to be simple, easy, and affordable. And that's what Ontario Greens are pushing for. And, you know, that's why I get so frustrated when I hear the premier saying, hey, we're going to rip charging stations, you know, out of the ground that have already been put into go parking lots, for example. Or when he says that, you know, electric vehicles are only for millionaires, that is just wrong. Electric vehicles should be for have reached people because it saves them money.
0: Mike, thanks for the time today and uh, we will uh, chat with you sometime down the road.
4: Hey, anytime, Rick. Happy to be on.
0: That is Mike Schreiner, the leader of the Ontario Green Party talking about the latest investment in EV vehicles, electric vehicles and hybrid uh, vehicles in this province.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're united
3: as a team and we're focused on three things. The economy, which is drifting out of control, a corrupt and cover up prone liberal government and a professional approach to dealing with the pandemic. Anyone who's not on that page, who's not putting the team in the country
0: first, will not be part of this team. That is Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole just the other day saying all members of his caucus have to be focused on the return of parliament next week. And uh, caucus unity is a huge part of the equation earlier this week. We all know that O'Toole announced the expulsion of Senator Denise Batters from the party caucus after she started a petition calling for a leadership review within six months, saying that the election loss and after that, you know, members deserve to have their say on the direction of the federal conservatives. Let's chat about this. Our guest is David Terrence. He's vice president, National Strategic Communications at Enterprise Canada and former communications strategist in the office of Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Good morning, David. Hey, Good morning, Rick. So amid uh, a public challenge of his leadership, Aaron O'Toole has reportedly enlisted the help of Jeff Ballingall. He's the guy behind Canada Proud and Ontario Proud social media networks to work with the Conservative Party on, quote unquote, election readiness. Your reaction to that move? Let's start with that. And, and is this more than just optically moving further to the right?
5: Well, you know, I know Jeff Ballingall. Actually, I, uh, I hired Jeff for his first job in Ottawa back in today. And He's a very smart. He's a very smart guy and and so and he has a background with mr. O'Toole. so mr o'Toole is is certainly entitled to make that hire. Um, you know, what I would say is is, is uh, you know he's the kind of person you hire when you actually feel you need to campaign for something. and And obviously, with the election campaign out of the way right now, I think certainly it's probably an acknowledgement from from Mr. O'Toole and his team that uh, they need to kind of uh, campaign uh, for him to uh, retain the confidence of conservative members by taking a, that kind of approach to uh, to his leadership. So, so I mean, it, it, it does signal a kind of change in positioning. But at the same time, these are things that happen in, in Ottawa all the time. Teams change, talent changes. But certainly, I think it change, you know it does represent a slight change in his posture.
0: O'Toole announced the uh, turfing, if you will, of Saskatchewan Senator Denise Batters earlier this week and called it a necessary decision for the well-being of the caucus. Do you agree?
5: Uh, Listen, I mean, the first thing I need to say on this, record, is listen, obviously i come on your program. I vote Conservative. I work for Conservatives. Actually, I I believe Canada better off if I had a Conservative government and it hurts to see, you know, infighting that actually, you know only hurts the ability of the Conservative Party to, to contest, the, to hold the government to account or contest and win the next election campaign. Um, you know, uh, I think Mr. O'Toole's hand was forced. Uh, you, you know, if you can't just keep people in the room when you're disclosing confidential information to basically openly declare their lack of faith in you. Uh, at the same time, you know, it's no secret that Ms. Batters is not the only person in that caucus who has misgivings about his leadership. And so, you know, what we what we're really seeing right now, with use a poker analogy, Rick, is is he's pushing a whole bunch of chips in, and he's daring his critics to call to, to call him. And you know, and and how much support does he have with the party, with the caucus? Well, either he has a strong hand or he's bluffing. Uh, but right now, he's he, I think he's, his hands enforced. He needs to do that because if he if he kind of wilted under that first criticism. I think you know his time as, as leader would be very, very limited.
0: Does he also run the risk of a bigger revolt? You know, if other MPs who are like-minded uh, uh, with Ms. Batters come forward and say, "Hey, listen, we want an early review," and there's more than one or two or three of them, he's kind of painted into a corner
5: here. Uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely, it's, it's higher risk. Um, it doesn't have to be an open revolt. Uh, I, I mean, you don't have to look back very far to his predecessor, Rick, to, uh, to Andrew Shearer. Uh, you know, he faced serious questions about his leadership after the 2019 uh, election, and he, he indicated he's prepared to stare them down or face them down. What what ended Andrew Scheer's leadership for you know, your listeners who, you know, who probably don't want to spend all their time uh, uh, meditating on the internal politics of the Conservative Party uh, was a whole bunch of internal leaks about uh, his personal financial arrangements with the party uh, expenses and what have you. The real danger if 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 the team is not truly unified by the leader, is there's lots of people in the orbit of Aaron O'Toole who have access to information that selectively leaks could embarrass Mr. O'Toole. And I think the real risk is right now is everything that he says in caucus, every private conversation he has, there's a risk that somebody will take that and leak it to the media to embarrass him and eventually what will happen to year could happen to him and he'd be forced to resign.
0: David Tarrant is our guest, Vice President, National Strategic Communications at Enterprise Canada and former communications strategist in the office of Prime Minister Stephen Harper. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We know that MPs are returning to the House of Commons next week. Will Mr. O'Toole's wobbly leadership status become a distraction?
5: Uh, this, is, uh, this is really the X factor in terms of Mr. O'Toole's leadership. I think in the, it's, it's inevitable that this will be a story uh, in the first two or three or four days of Parliament resuming, and it won't be a lot of fun for Mr. O'Toole. The good news is if you, if you somehow are able to persevere, uh, uh, deliver a message that resonates with Canadians, do an effective job holding Trudeau to account, uh, this government is, is is not the almighty, Rick. They're, they're, they make a ton of mistakes and they have a ton of blemishes of their own. Uh, and people realize, you know, that's focus of the news should be how is the government performing versus what's going on within the conservative caucus room. Then I think he absolutely can come out of this and and rally and rally conservatives behind the fact that I am the alternative to Justin Trudeau. And let's remember one thing: conservatives of all branches of the party agree on whether the red Tories, fiscal conservatives, social conservatives, whatever you have it, is that Justin Trudeau has it been a disaster for the country. And and if, if, if Mr. Toole can rally them and say, I am prepared to beat this guy, and I'm able to beat this guy, then I think a lot of the internal misgivings can be forgiven, and he can actually strengthen his hand. But it's going to be a rocky first week. It's going to be a rocky first week because um, right now there's a significant segment of the party that does not believe he can do that job. And so uh, the pressure's on, and that's part of the, the pressure of leadership.
0: David, thank you very much, as always, for your insight and for rearranging your schedule this morning, too. Really appreciate the time.
5: I have no problem, Rick. Have a great day.
0: You too. David Terrence, VP National Strategic Communications at Enterprise Canada and former communications strategist in the office of uh, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Yes, Aaron O'Toole's first couple of days in the House, I'm sure as they have been over the last uh, number of weeks, going to be a little rocky. And uh, we'll bring you all the latest happenings from the House of Commons starting next week.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Well, the Christmas shopping season is is underway and a new survey shows that two-thirds of Canadians plan to charge their holiday purchases to a credit card. That, however, may not be the best plan. Paul Anadiak is a licensed insolvency trustee at BDO Debt Solutions here in Hamilton and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton to talk about this. Good morning, Paul.
2: Good
3: morning, Rick. It's a pleasure to be on your show. It's always a pleasure to be on your show this bright and early.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, Spending is expected to increase more than 30% this holiday season, surpassing pre-pandemic levels, and 66% of Canadians plan to use their credit card. Are you seeing red flags here?
3: definitely we're seeing some red flags here you know this is a major concern to us and we're still in the pandemic And a lot of people uh, fail to realize that is what we're seeing is people are getting tired of the pandemic it's almost like the pandemic blues are hitting them and this holiday season they want to show more they want to spend more they want to show and we're already seeing it if you drive uh, down the streets at night you're seeing the lights that are already up and what's really concerning is that we just went through BDO's affordability index in this last month and it's showing that the pandemic is eroding the standard of living to many canadians among those who carry debt two in five accrued additional debt due to the pandemic and these are the also the individuals that are planning on spending more money during this holiday season you know one quarter of canadians who incurred new types of debt for the first time during a the pandemic they found that credit card debt was the number one debt they were using and this is another major concern because a lot of people don't realize the implications of a credit card and the financial risks Credit cards are great nowadays, given society and TAP technology. You know, but however, credit cards is one of the most expensive type of debts that you can have. If you're carrying a balance on your credit card at the end of the month, your credit card company charges you an annual interest rate of anywhere between 18 to 20%. Now, that's just if you're making purchases, those that are using their credit card for cash advances thinking they're going to get a better deal out of store uh, paying cash, these interest rates could go up to 25% and they actually start charging interest rates at the time of
6: purchase.
0: I was looking online. There was a survey from uh, LendingTree down in the U.S., and it shows that 48% of Americans, and I'm sure it's the same here in Canada, so about half of Americans are dreading the holidays due to the costs associated with them, and that goes along with that debt stress, uh, that holiday debt stress. It's real. How how do we deal with
3: that? Well, first of all, people need to pause and, and take a look. We're, we're right now, we're sitting, we have a little bit of time before Christmas is coming and it's time to plan. Now if you've already been spending towards Christmas, you know, you've already started tipping into that holiday budget. And if you don't have a holiday budget, now is the time to actually make a holiday budget. What we find is, according to the surveys, is that only 17% of shoppers have a firm budget. And this is actually down from last year. So for the last year, you and I have been talking about getting budgets in place. What we're actually seeing is that the numbers are getting lower of the individuals that are using a budget. Now, for those that uh, have not shopped or are getting ready to shop, it's important that they sit down, that the plan, you know, making your budget, you need to include all your holiday expenses, gifts, decorations, travel uh groceries and it's important to remember if you've already put up those christmas lights that should be part of your christmas budget you don't want to start your budget you know in the negative
0: we know that uh less than half of canadians i think the the is 47 percent or something like that uh have a budget during the holiday season it is rather difficult at least for some uh, to stick to that budget because the emotion of the holidays comes through how do we stick to the budget nowadays
3: well, you don't want to get caught up in FOMO. That's the fear of missing out. When you're going shopping, especially if you go into a store, if you're planning on going to the store, you're going to be walking through aisles and aisles. And of course, stores put place items strategically to make you want to purchase them. So avoid those impulse buys. Make sure that when you get into the store, you have a clear idea of what you're looking for. Also, take the time. Since we're planning early, take the time to even shop around online. Look for the best deal. Also, avoid those last-minute shopping uh, scenarios if you can because this leads to the overspending and this leads to the credit card debts. So, you know, do not go in on December 24th expecting that you're going to get your whole list fulfilled because you're going to find that you're spending more money. And most importantly, if you're making a major purchase, implement the 24-hour rule. And what that is is, you know, you're going to take a look at the item and then go home, sleep on it, think about it. And then tomorrow, if you're really interested, plan for it and use the appropriate credit if you need to use the credit.
0: Great advice as always from Paul Ananiak, Licensed Insolvency Trustee at BDO Debt Solutions. You can hear more from Paul on Ask the Experts with BDO Debt Solutions this Saturday at 11, right here on 900 CHML. Paul, great tips as always. Thanks for joining us this morning.
3: Thanks, Rick. Have a good day.
0: Thanks you, too. That's Paul Anadiak, licensed insolvency trustee at BDO Debt Solutions. And uh, again, you can check uh, him out online at uh, BDODebtSolutions.ca.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Will COVID-19 booster shots be required to be considered fully vaccinated going forward? We know booster shots are going to be a thing probably sometime in 2022. But is this going to be adopted by workplaces across Canada? We know that many workplaces have said, listen, you've got to be fully vaccinated to be working in our facility. If you're not, you know, you might go on paid leave. There might be an education component. There have been some terminations of places like hospitals over this. When it comes to booster shots or the rules going to be the same? Well, let's ask our next guest. He's a legal manager with HR company Peninsula Canada, and his name is Patrick Stepanian. Patrick, good morning. Welcome to the show.
7: Good morning. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm all right. Just waking up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Aren't we all? So the question is, are workplaces going to make boosters a part of their vaccination requirements?
7: Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I think, uh, as with most things that have happened over the last few months relating to vaccines, uh, mandates, and policies, uh, it's probably going to be a bit of a waiting uh, game uh, based off of what we get from Health Canada and from our local health authorities. So, uh, I think you were actually right in your uh, your intro there that uh, you know if we're going to you know try and predict this, probably some point into. You know, early 2022, uh, the definition will change to include those booster shots, those third rounds. Um, but I, I wouldn't expect uh, workplaces to uh, to jump the gun on this right now.
0: What are employers allowed to ask of their employees right now? and And could that and maybe will that change when booster shots come into effect?
7: Yeah, so right now, what they've been asking really for the last few months is, you know, what's your what's your vaccination status and provide please provide me with proof that you're vaccinated, um, you know, and, and this is part of, again, workplaces implementing their their policies, their mandates, if they're in those industries where they have the mandates, particularly from government, um, and that's and then they go from there. But it's important to uh, to clearly communicate those policies ahead of time. Uh, so when when that change, if if and when that change, uh, uh, comes through for, for booster shots. Uh, let's say, you know, maybe spring 2022 would be uh, maybe a, a, a guess we could make right now. Um, likely the, the, those policies, uh, will, will have to be just amended and those changes will have to be communicated ahead of time before you start saying, okay, well, you've got to show me that you've gone, you're going to go get your boost, your third shot or, or your, you know, you have it already, please provide proof. Um, so I don't expect it to be too, too different. And, and again, it's all about just waiting for what the, the public health authorities are gonna, are gonna signal and, and provide, uh, as guidance and, and, and regulation.
0: Patrick Stepanian is our guest. He is a legal manager at HR company Peninsula Canada. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're chatting about booster shots and whether or not those will be a requirement at a fully vaccinated workplace. Uh, we know that Ontario, along with provinces like B.C. and Alberta, are offering these boosters to uh, seniors, those with um, immunocompromised situations, some health care workers in some you know, long-term care facilities or hospitals, uh, other vulnerable groups. BC, I understand, plans to open up to the entire population starting next year. Um, and, and I would imagine that some workplaces are probably going to say, all right, if it's available to everybody, we'll jump on board as well and mandate that our workers get these shots. Do we expect other provinces to perhaps follow suit?
7: Uh, I mean, again, based off the way things have gone so far with the first two doses, I, I wouldn't be surprised uh, Yeah, if they all sort of line up and, and one by one. Uh, put in those those boosters. I I mean, just from a personal uh, experience perspective, when I was in grade seven, you had to go and get the hepatitis B shot. I think it was, and you got two doses when you were in school. One at the beginning of the school year, one at the end. A couple of years ago, I had to go to India for a trip uh, for a friend's wedding, and so beforehand, I went and got tested to figure out what my immunity was. And my doctor said, "You actually, you know, your hepatitis B immunity is down now." And the difference was between being 12 years old and being into my you know you know over 30 at that point was i had to go and get the hepatitis b shot again but it was going to be in three doses so i I don't think that you know having three doses for vaccines is something that's particularly strange at the end of the day um and it's just a case of, of Yeah, you know, we make those decisions based off the information that we have as we gather that information. And So, yeah, if BC is going to be the first one, then they'll be the first one. And then, you know, the other provinces, uh, Ontario, Quebec, whatever it'll be, will probably follow suit and we'll see how it goes from there.
0: I would think so, too. And we chatted about this on our show uh, a couple of weeks ago on, you know, if you've already received two doses of the vaccine, you know, you're obviously fully supporting the science and, and, and how it has curbed the spread of the virus, so you're probably more likely to get that third booster shot, but when it comes to the workplace, you know, we've been told that, you know, if you have two doses you're fully vaccinated, so there might be some gray area, or an employee might say, hey, I have, I'm i fully vaxxed, I have two shots, I don't need a third.
7: Yeah, and so, I mean, <laughs> yeah, we'll <laughs> Absolutely, we'll probably be experiencing it. Let me say, Peninsula Canada will definitely have you know some of our clients, uh, our employers, coming to us with those kinds of our, uh, disagreements and disputes. Um, and you know, again, our position has been, well, what's the information that we're getting from the public health authorities, right? Because as an employer, at the end of the day, right, you have to satisfy your health and safety obligations. And so, it, right now, satisfying those obligations means making you know fully vaccinated, and you know I, I've got my uh, you know little uh, QR code passport from the government of Ontario that says I have two shots. Um, for all of, we know, that again, the guidance, the information will change, will adapt, and it could be you know a, as an example, a hypothetical, you know April 2022. The next thing you know, it says well you have to get this updated because the QR code now says that you'll have three shots as part of fully, fully vaccinated. Um. So it, it really, yeah, it's definitely, you know, um, I agree with you. There's going to be some conflicts, some disagreements uh, that come down the line. Um, but at the end of the day for employers, it's, you know, it's going to be about looking for what you get as guidance and information and uh, looking to make sure that you're still complying and satisfying your obligations for health and safety.
0: Is there any chatter on whether or not these mandates could spread to things like the flu shot? You know, you got to be mandated to get your annual flu shot. Is there any talk about that?
7: Uh, not, not that I know of. I mean, there are certain, uh, I think, high-risk industries that really already have those kinds of sort of requirements for, your, you know, please please show us your vaccination that you've got, you know, all, all your your vac- vaccinations up to date at that, to that point in your life before you can come into this environment. Um, if we're talking about just the general flu shot that changes every year, uh, you know, depending on what the dominant strains are, um, I we haven't heard anything uh, on our end as of yet, um, but... And I would hesitate to, uh, to 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 sort of you know venture a guess about whether that's going to be something that does come down the line or not.
0: Patrick, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for your insight and analysis on this uh, hot topic. Enjoy the day.
7: Thanks, you too. Take care.
0: That is Patrick Stepanian, legal manager at HR company Peninsula Canada, chatting with us about uh, booster shots and whether or not they will be mandated in the workplace.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: This is a pretty cool story, and I wanted to shine a spotlight on it because it's an important one as well. And it comes to us from the University of Guelph, which has announced plans to launch a Black Canadian studies program in the fall of 2022. And here to share some info on that is Dr. Kimberly Francis, music professor in the School of Fine Art and Music at the University of Guelph. Dr. Francis, good morning. Thanks for joining us.
6: Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me.
0: You also co-chaired the curriculum committee for this program. Why was it important to um, establish and introduce this program to the students at the University of Guelph?
6: Absolutely. So last year, our president started the University of Guelph Anti-Racism Action Plan. And one of the key pillars of that was to create a more inclusive, uh, equitable campus. And so this is the curricular component of that. It's an opportunity for us to actually have within the curriculum explicit content that deals with the Black student experience.
0: This is a phenomenal program, really sorely lacking in our education system at numerous levels, not just at the university level. What will students learn in this program?
6: We're really excited about how this program was built, and it really came out of consulting with our students, consulting with our faculty, and identifying the gaps that we had within our curriculum. So it's inherently interdisciplinary. We wanted to make sure that students got the breadth Of possibilities in this area. So students will actually be covering courses from history, literature, music, philosophy, sociology. Um, The courses are going to be fantastic and um, one of the key pillars of our particular curriculum is actually going to be a focus on the Black Canadian experience. So we have a course dedicated to Black Canadian history Um, We have other courses that are dedicated to working with the community, uh, getting out there and just really celebrating the rich cultural uh, community that we are a part of.
0: I'd imagine this is going to be a tremendous eye-opener for students enrolled in this program.
6: Um, That's what we kept hearing from students was there's so much we don't even know we don't know so it was really uh, exciting to talk to them about the questions that they had that weren't being answered, things that you know um, are, could be could seem quite obvious, but that weren't being covered in our textbooks and that weren't being covered in our courses. So these are these are really, I think exciting, rich opportunities for students and so important for those who are going through our education system right now.
0: So students were able to provide some input or feedback before this program was launched?
6: Absolutely. In fact, we had four students who sat on the curriculum committee, and they were a driving force in identifying gaps and um, letting us know what their experience had been. Um, we were so impressed with the students who who agreed to participate, give up their time. We built this during the pandemic, so everyone was dealing with so much and yet, these students came out, and they were the the level of of discourse, the passion behind this. It was incredible. So we were we're so grateful to the students who agreed to be
0: a part of this. That's awesome to hear. We're chatting with uh, Dr. Kimberly Francis, music professor in the School of Fine Art and Music at the University of Guelph. Also co-chaired the curriculum committee for a new Black Canadian Studies program that is going to launch at the University of Guelph in the fall of 2022 and I understand that Guelph has a unique history in relation to the underground railroad. Is that going to be a part of the program?
6: I think so. We're going to work really closely um, with our community partners. We have one professor in particular, Dr. Jade Ferguson, who's already built these incredible relationships with example, the Guelph Black Historical Society. Um, So we do expect that students will be engaged specifically with the Guelph community and with things that are already happening in the city.
0: I understand this program is now one of two in the country. Where is the other, and did you take any best practices from that other program?
6: (laughs) Well, we were trying within our own design to differentiate and sort of augment what else is out there. So there is one other Black Canadian program. It's a certificate at York University So ours is going to be a minor, and what it will do is it will be specifically um, geared towards our own strengths within the research expertise we already have at Guelph with some of the incredible professors that are already doing work in this area. So it's going to be very much a Guelph program. We're excited.
0: Yeah, and you should be, and and you should be congratulated as well, because this is, as I mentioned, a phenomenal initiative. Dr. Francis, really appreciate the time today. Good luck with the program as well.
6: Thank you so much, Rick. This has been wonderful.
0: That is Dr. Kimberly Francis, music professor in the School of Fine Art and Music at the University of Guelph, who co-chaired the Curriculum Committee for this new Black Canadian Studies program that will launch in the fall of 2022 at the University of Guelph. I always say knowledge is power, and this is a... Uh, you know, a, a subject that is really not taught in our schools when it comes to BIPOC issues. We need more of these kind of programs. So hats off to those at the University of
1: Guelph. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: So uh, Tim Biebs yeah, is going to be a thing at uh, Tim Hortons. We have uh, seen our first uh, glimpse of the merch that's going with it, which um, is interesting, I guess. I'm not a big fan of the, uh, the, the fanny pack. <laughs> the fanny pack. What every kid
4: wants in yes. their Christmas talking With Tim is Beeb's. a Tim Beeb's fanny pack.
0: <laughs> yeah, chocolate brown. And then there's a tote bag, which looks like an apron. And they just like have cut off yeah. the part where you would tie around your <laughs> your back. <laughs> and then folded it up
1: and made it into a yeah. tote bag. Yeah.
0: So, not, uh, I, I mean, I'm sure Bieber fans are going to be all over this. But we have to play this audio for you and our listeners today, because this is a woman trying to order Tim Beebs at a Tim Hortons drive through This is what it sounded like.
3: Okay.
0: And I'll take some Bee Balls. Beeber Balls. Oh, Beeber
5: Balls? Is that what
6: it is? Do we have, Do you have those? Sorry, one more time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, the, the Beeber Balls. Oh, the... the Timbits. Those are on the 29th. Oh.
0: Yeah, November 29th is when you get... The beaver balls. Yeah. <laughs> you, should, you know, if they really wanted to make a splash, they should have called them beaver balls. I mean, it's accurate. It's a collaboration between beaver, are little balls, <laughs> in various flavors.
3: <laughs> There's no way I could order that. <laughs>
0: Now, I mean if you want to appeal to a younger generation, that's what they should have been calling.
4: Oh my god. That's goodness.
0: fantastic. That audio is never going away.
4: No, it's not. <laughs> Justin Bieber may be regretting this he may right have. about it.
0: He now. may have, yes. Forget about the merch. Bieber balls are being ordered starting November twenty ninth. Shona, thanks a lot. <laughs> Our, our twitter poll question today <laughs> it should have been should tims have called them beaver balls but it's not uh <laughs> well not having to pay for a pcr test entice you to visit the united states yes or no are your two options i'm laughing because shona's still laughing <laughs> that's why i'm laughing oh ah, beaver cry i know i'm crying i'm not crying you're crying <laughs>